Good morning. Our scripture today is going to be in the book of Mark, chapter 6, verses 14 to 29. Um, Stand if you are able for this reading. Uh, If you are reading out of the Bible in front of you, it is on page 933. Also, if you do not have a Bible or if somebody you know could use a Bible, please take this as our gift to you. Mark, chapter 6, verses 14. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man and kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. This is the word of the Lord. If you are just now joining us again in person or online, my name again is Evan Skelton, one of the pastors here. And like every week, we are going to be opening up God's word, expecting that the words that we're going to encounter there are relevant for our lives, that we need them. And so I encourage you to keep those words open. Follow them with your finger. Um, Again, we want to make sure, and I, again, I need these words to change my life just as you need them to change yours. So please be referring to this passage as we go throughout today's sermon today. We're going to be back in the gospel according to Mark. And Larry, you did a fantastic job, Larry Babb, last week, uh, one of our elders here, um, in uh, in introducing again this incredible book, which like is one is one of uh, four books actually in your Bible that are somewhat unique in that their primary purpose is to focus in on the life and teaching of Jesus. But they're not like biographies that we might be aware of or familiar with. These books aim to convince us more than they seek to inform us that Jesus is really who he claimed to be. They have a purpose of, co- of seeing us surrender to him as Lord and Savior. These uh, books, though, one of the things that is so important about them is that not only do they press into the nature and character of Christ, but sometimes they take a step back and they fill in what it looks like actually to follow Christ, what a life following Christ will look like. And that was perhaps especially needed for the people who received this book. Uh, It would have come to believers who likely lived in Rome, one of the most difficult places to be an early Christian. After all, people in Rome had found that following Jesus could be rather difficult. 
It didn't make, just make their relationships awkward. You know what made them appear strange and offensive to the culture around them? Some, in the name of following Jesus, lost friendships. Some lost family. A great deal, many of people lost jobs, it seems along with the added pressures from the government to quiet down, especially after Nero took power, often using the abusive arm of the government to make them do so. It's likely these tensions and losses that the earliest Christians experienced caused the earliest Christians to wonder if they were doing something wrong. To wonder why Jesus, why following Jesus, had come with so much difficulty? Where was the power that Jesus spoke of? Where was the victory? Where was the kingdom that Jesus had promised them? More importantly, was Jesus worth following if this is what kind of life it led to? Increasingly so, I have to tell you, I find Christians today asking themselves the same questions as it gets more and more costly to be a public Christian especially for those who insist on taking their Bibles so seriously, treating the Bible as if it's their authority, as if it doesn't need a facelift for modern times. Which is one of the reasons, again, I think this passage matters for us so greatly today. Well, in many passages, the joy of discipleship, of following Jesus, stands out like a neon sign. Today, we're going to consider the cost of coming to Christ as we consider the example of one whose flame was snuffed out rather viciously, whose allegiance to God eventually cost him everything. Whether you're a Christian or not, and again, we have people who come to our service from a variety of different places spiritually, I think this passage helps us understand why allegiance to Jesus is bound eventually to come with a cost. Why it so often puts Christians on the outside of popular opinion. But even more importantly, I think our passage shows us why it's worth it. We're going to consider Mark chapter 6 verses 14 through 29 in four parts. A four-part drama that turns out to be juicier than the skeeziest soap opera you may be ever familiar with. Okay, so the four-part drama we'll unpack is the fearless prophet, the conflicted tyrant, a spiteful queen, and a lonely death. Ready to get to work? Again, keep those Bibles open, and let's consider the fearless prophet. Last week, Larry, who did an excellent job, again, in the verses prior to this, uh, we considered a, what might be called a high point in the disciples' life, maybe the high point of their following of Jesus up to this point, the Jewish miracle worker and the apparent prophet, who obviously was much more than that, but again, they're trying to make sense of his identity as well. Jesus continued to gain popularity in Galilee, and now, unexpectedly, Jesus began to share that supernatural power with his closest followers. And where we left off in verse 13, Jesus' disciples were announcing the kingdom. They were performing miracles in the name of their master. They were casting out demons, much to their surprise, to the effect that all of this seems to have gotten the curiosity of the local government. The local government begins to take notice. Jesus comes onto the radar. In other words, their teacher was trending, and they were being swept, swept up into his growing influence. It may have seemed a great time to be one of Jesus' closest followers, but then John Mark, the author of this book, reigns on the parade. It's as if he purpose, purposely tempers all of this triumph 
by shifting the spotlight from Jesus to a disciple who hasn't exactly experienced his best life now. In fact, his allegiance to God caught the attention of others, but it caught it in a costly way. It cost him his ministry, it cost him his safety, and eventually it would cost him his very life. He is referred to here as John the Baptist. Now, I need to say, we don't mean Baptist like he's not a Lutheran or a Catholic. Baptist means baptizer, that he was one who became known uniquely as a prophet for immersing or baptizing people in the Jordan River, including Jesus himself. And up to his imprisonment, imprisonment, John actually had gained a significant reputation, a huge following. He was the most popular figure and teacher prior to Jesus. His influence and attraction were unprecedented, history-making even. We hear more about John the Baptist by Josephus, an ancient historian, than we do about Jesus, it seems. Despite the fact that John the Baptist not only proclaimed a baptism, which would have been, it might seem strange to us, but actually extraordinarily humiliating for people, depending on their social class. He was calling the rich and the poor, the leaders and the common uh, men and women to all come in allegiance and repentance to God. But a baptism, John, the, John Mark tells us, that was a baptism of repentance. The word repentance feels like a very religious term to many of us. It means something like to turn, which is exactly what John was asking these men and women, these Jews and Gentiles, rich and poor, all to do, to turn from a life of self and sin to turn to authentic dependence upon God, a kind of dependence that would, have, uh, would awaken a love for others. In fact, what's so remarkable about John is how specific he gets in applying to very real social injustices of his day. It's important to note that this message wasn't exactly what you might call a crowd-pleaser. It probably wasn't the most encouraging message you could have tuned in on. he, He said enough, in reality, to tick absolutely everyone off, no matter who was listening. And yet Jesus, I mean, sorry, of course Jesus is God, but God used his ministry, used John the Baptist's ministry, to ignite reformation in Israel. This unattractive message revived not just a desperation for God, but an authentic social concern, even among the ruling elites in Jerusalem. It was this ministry, in fact, that Jesus said prepared for his own. It prepared a people who were ready to receive the good news of the kingdom that Jesus proclaimed. But it was also this message of repentance that got John in trouble. Enter Herod. Now, one of the confusing things in the New Testament is there's a lot of Herods, and it can be hard to keep them straight. This is specifically a man named Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas is the son of one, a Herod, called Herod the Great. And the reason he's significant is Herod the Great is the one we hear of in Jesus' birth narratives. He's the one specifically who, when he hears rumors of a newborn king, then authorizes the slaughter of all the Hebrew babies in Bethlehem. Not a great figure, especially in the scriptures, who was known for his ruthlessness, this King Herod. But his son, Herod Antipas, was in many ways just as cunning. 
Only he ruled over a fraction of his territory. He wasn't king. We'll look at this in a second. He ruled over a fourth of Israel, the second best portion, if they were going to compare, to be precise, including the regions in which Jesus ministered, which is why Jesus comes on his radar. And would later, Herod Antipas would be the same figure who presides at least in some measure over Jesus' execution. Herod Antipas, even as he was less powerful than his father, was not someone you wanted to mess with. And yet word has gotten back to him that the popular Jewish leader and prophet had taken to criticizing his marriage, of all things, accusing him of incest and adultery. He accused him not of breaking Rome's law, but of breaking God's. You can expect that this enraged Herod and his wife Herodias for reasons we're going to get to in a moment. But still, you have to wonder what prompted John to do so. After all, what in the world did Herod's marriage have to do with John the baptizer? This marriage, as we'll see, is it's more than a bit strange. We'll get into some of the details, but still, who was Herod really hurting Herod wasn't even a Jew. What reason would John have to take pot shots at his sex life? Two reasons, I think, actually. First, because whether or not Herod knew the Jewish law, whether or not he cared about the Jewish law or their God, character matters, especially the character of our leaders. Because character has downstream effects on everyone who is led, it affects those they lead, including the average Jew in Israel. It was not just about Herod. There would be others who would suffer, and we'll see in some some tangible ways. Character matters, especially among our leaders, Christian or not. I wish I could actually assume that we all agree on this, but I'm surprised sometimes at the lengths that even religious people will go to ignore character when a politician favors their preferred policies. You see, even if these leaders end up doing what we hope they will, their character is bound to have many, many consequences, seen and unseen, on the most vulnerable especially. Isn't this a story of so many tyrants throughout world history who were elected as the strategic choice, elected as the as the practical choice to get them to desired ends, while their character, yeah, it left much to be desired, only it was a matter of time before that character ended up costing those they led in drastic ways. Certainly, we are called to honor our leaders, according to the Bible, but sometimes the best way to honor them is through honest criticism, even disagreement, and sometimes opposition. Isn't that what we see with John the Baptist? In a world that is increasingly divided on political lines, Christians, as citizens of one kingdom, of the heavenly kingdom, should be able to demonstrate what this looks like. Honest about the shortcomings on both sides of the political spectrum. But second, John takes pot shots because God is not a tribal God. He is the God of all people, of all stations, and no one in the end gets to disregard his ways. There's a sense, sense in which, and it's important that I say this, that Christians are 
not called to judge those who are outside the church, outside of their community. First, First Corinthians makes this clear. Paul says in verse 12, for what do I have to do with judging, what have I to do with judging outsiders? It is not, is, is it not those inside the church who you are to judge? God judges those outside. That's pretty clear. What this is speaking against is the kind of self-righteous sin hunt that many religious people can be prone to, eagerly pointing out all the reasons in the outside culture of why the culture is going to quote-unquote hell in a handbasket while puffing themselves up by comparison. That's what Paul is disallowing, as if we needed moral reform more than we needed Christ, as if there was a path to true, genuine moral transformation apart from Christ. And yet... There is also a sense in which a society that favors what God does not doesn't really work out for anyone. Take one example that, again, may step on some toes here, but take God's assessment of something that may seem as harmless to some of us as Herod's life choices, cohabitation prior to marriage. You see, despite God's word on the subject, It's common today to assume that living together before marriage results in stronger commitments, stronger marriages. It it makes sense to many that it gives you a chance to kick the tires before you buy the car, as it were. However, even secular social scientists have begun to speak of what's called the cohabitation effect on our relationships, in which those who choose to live together before they're married are more likely, and this comes, this comes again from secular scholarship, secular social scientists. They don't have a religious dog in the fight. They would say that those who live together before they're married are more likely to get a divorce or to separate if and when they actually do get married. In fact, cohabitation has been statistically linked to lower levels of satisfaction and higher rates of infidelity. Not to mention the statistical links between cohabitation and depression, sexual uh, manipulation, addiction, abuse, abandonment, even generational poverty. I can send you the research if you would like. In other words, rejecting God's word doesn't end up working out for anyone. I realize that John's criticism can seem a bit self-righteous and intolerant in a culture like ours. You may wonder why believers, following John's example, uh, insist on, quote-unquote, legislating morality, whether it concerns the definition of marriage or care for the poor or restrictions on abortion. But in reality, every single society legislates a certain vision of morality, mandating the things it sees as being the best for the individuals it governs. And Christians understand that only a biblical vision produces any real flourishing and prosperity in the end. Now that truth doesn't seem perhaps to many of us as, uh, as inclusive or sufficiently diverse enough for us, but John simply believes that God's ways are the best ways. And as the best ways, they are the only ways that result in justice and goodness and mercy of others. If you are a Christian, though, I need to say, this doesn't give you permission to go on a sin hunt in the life of others. In fact, if a sin hunt is to begin anywhere, according to Paul, where does it begin? It begins in us, in our own hearts. But that doesn't mean that Christians should pretend 
that the things that God warns us will mislead, corrupt, and destroy are actually up for debate. This doesn't give permissions, again, to permission for Christians to be self-righteous snobs or cruel in their application of truth, but it does mean that we should be public with others about the goodness of God's ways. Even if it meets with disagreement, the fullest joy of every human being is found in submitting to God's guiding word, supremely in submitting to Jesus as Lord, and it is a mercy when God wakes us up to it. It seems we could use a few more Johns today. But as it did for John, that kind of public faith is bound to cause sparks, which leads to our second point, a conflicted tyrant, a conflicted tyrant. As I mentioned before, John's words ticked Herod and Herodias off in the worst way. And just like Jezebel that you might read of in the Old Testament who hunted the prophet Elijah, Herodias wanted nothing more than to see this Jewish hillbilly put to death. Herod, for reasons we'll get to in a second, chooses instead to have him locked up at Marcurus, a fortress his father had built as an imperial palace, had rebuilt it really, uh, atop a steep hill the east, east of the Dead Sea. The prophet according to Herod and Herodias, you see, has to be silenced. But then again, we have to ask, why? I mean, it makes sense why John would speak out, but why does Herod care what John thinks? Why does he exactly fear the baptizer? Again, two reasons, I think, and I think it has to do with what John threatened. Specifically, two loves that Herod had that he threatened. In fact, these are... These, these two loves are a love for sex and a love for power. Let's look at the first, a love of sex. Now, let's get to the soap opera I mentioned of Herod's life. Based on the records that we have from first century Israel, Herod Antipas was staying with his brother, his half-brother actually, uh, Herod Philip. While, uh, see why this is confusing, you got all sorts of Herod all over the place, and they have Herodias who he's married to. This is just, this is really strange. But nonetheless, Herod, staying with his brother-in-law in Rome, falls in love with his bro- half-brother's wife. And uh, Herodias, a, a woman who also, get this, happens to be his niece. I know it's weird. I can't get into all the family dynamics, but falls in love with his sister-in-law, who also happens to be his niece. And it probably should shock us a little bit, but this is not all that uncommon, actually, to see in ancient Rome. Still, it seems that during his stay, these two made plans to run off together. Of course, this would mean divorcing their spouses, but the heart wants what it wants, right? And soon after, Herod and Herodias were wed. This seems like perfect material for a Netflix series. There probably already is one, actually. But today, doesn't this just seem to be common sense among many that we would allow our sexual desires to take the steering wheel? To be fully human, it is assumed that you need an active sex life. Our culture has made sex into a kind of need on par with eating and drinking. Sure, it may come with a committed relationship for some, but still it could come through a random hookup for others, or maybe even in private through pornography. For many, what feels good is good so long as it doesn't harm anyone else, supposedly. But then we also make sex a form of identity. 
In fact, we have so intertwined our deepest sense of self and fulfillment with our sexual desires today. Our attractions or orientations define us in ways that they have defined no other generation. In fact, you might say that our search for sexual, sec, sorry, sexual freedom has become a search in many ways for ourselves. And so sexual freedom becomes not just a right to defend, but then the right to defend. The only way of knowing who I am in the end. It's no wonder that our culture is finding and prides itself in finding ever, ever more creative ways to cross whatever boundaries and hindrances might have hindered us once before. If our sexual desires really are who we are, if they are the supreme markers of my identity as our culture has made them, if sexual fulfillment is the only way to real fulfillment, then sexual freedom isn't just a right, it's a duty. In other words, you could say we idolize sex. We've made sex into a kind of God, just like Herod. And it's no wonder that Herod felt threatened then by John. But it's not the only reason that he felt threatened. The second has to do with his love of power. You see, Herod's, Herod's private bedroom decisions ended up having some rather public effects. Character matters. In fact, the wife Herod divorced also happened to be the daughter of a neighboring king, who wasn't all too happy to see his daughter so callously discarded, which meant that Herod's self-serving lust ignited then a border war with Israel at any time which could erupt. And with all these new headaches, the last thing that Herod needed was trouble now on his home front among his people. After all, John was very influential. It didn't take too much to imagine that John's words against Herod would stir up a grassroots uprising, an insurrection among the Jews who already, to be honest, hated him. An uprising that maybe he could quell, but it would certainly hurt his chances of becoming king. I realize, again, this might sound a little confusing. After all, if you look at verse 14, what does it call him? It calls him King Herod. But this is meant to actually probably be an ironic title. Even though his father, Herod the Great, was king, Herod Antipas was denied that title, and he resented it. He was a tetrarch, and he resented that decision for most of his life. In fact, he spent much of his life, according to records, pretending as if he was king. And so when our passage calls him king, it's mocking him, mocking the very title he wished he could claim. In fact, he, at, later on in his life, at the influence of his wife Herodias, he appealed to Caesar for this final promotion to be made king as he surely deserved. And not only was he denied that title, he was fired on the spot from being tetrarch and exiled to, the, to, to Gaul, banished from the empire. He was a man who envied and obsessed over power. And if he ever wanted to make a good impression with Rome now, coming back to the present, or at least in our passage, he couldn't have some Jewish prophet standing now in his way. But of course, Herod isn't the only one to obsess over power, is he? Just think of how much our current cultural conversation is about power today. Even as you might say that we're a sex-obsessed culture, you could also say that we are a power-obsessed culture, creating hierarchies among one another about who has power and who deserves power. I mean, just think about all the labels that I might carry and what they've come to mean of white or, although I don't love it, cisgender or heterosexual or male. Those labels, think about all that is laden 
in them? What have they come to mean in our present culture? Perhaps we are more aware than ever, and this is, the, this is a positive side of this, about the lengths that human beings will go to protect their influence, their wealth, their reputation, and their power. That's something the Bible is very public about. It's one of the effects of sin. Even if those who are, who have those things of wealth, reputation, influence, even if it means they turn a deaf ear to the grief and anger of others, explaining away their claims of injustice because it works out better for them. But whether you consider yourself among the powerful or not in our culture, we have been taught to crave power, taught to define one another based on how much power they have and to resent all who would deny it from us. In other words, you could say we idolize power. We've made a god of power, just like Herod. The thing you need to know about idols is they promise great things to us. They promise real beauty, real satisfaction, real safety and stability. There's a reason we worship them. They offer not just a particular vision of what the good life is, but a path to get there. They play on our deepest desires and seem to protect us from our greatest fears. But the other thing you need to know about idols is that they don't play nice with others. They demand absolute loyalty from you. They do not tolerate opposition, which is why they end up picking fights, not just with God's word, but with God himself. Let's take, for example, sex. Despite what you might expect, the Bible is very forward about sex. It even sings about sex in one of the books of the Bible, but then it imposes some very strict limitations on sex, it would seem to us, restricting sex to the covenantal bounds of a heterosexual marriage. The only context, the Bible would say, in which sex can flourish and would claim that it only brings harm and headache when it goes outside of those boundaries. As Stephen Tracy puts it, according to the Bible, sex is most meaningful and healthy in a relationship in which a couple has made a vow of lifelong commitment to one another. This provides the safest and most intimate setting for sex, for only in marriage is sex experienced in a relationship in which all of life is shared together. But then for many... These very claims are what seem to bring harm and heartache. They aren't just repressive for many. These claims are viewed as cruel and unjust. It's, after all, if it is true that my, and I don't think that it is, but if, as we have been told, our personal sexual desires are who we are, if they are the supreme markers of our identity and the only way to find real fulfillment as our culture has made them out to be, then any form of restraint would be seen as oppression, preventing us from living our most authentic life, experiencing our authentic self. You see why it wars eventually with God's word and insists on it be being treated as God instead of God himself or take power. Again, the Bible is very upfront about power and its abuses. It reserves some of its strongest words for oppressors and sides so often with the oppressed. And yet in the Bible, power is neither the ultimate problem or the ultimate solution. Instead, the problem underneath our problems isn't out there at all with all those who have refused me power. It is in here. It is my rebellion against the one who has ultimate 
power, my rebellion against God himself. In other words, sin is not exclusively the oppressor's problem. It is a human problem. Of course, the Bible is strong and damning about its confrontation of injustice, but it won't allow us to divide ourselves into the oppressed and the oppressors or to dehumanize one another based on their skin color or social status or allow us to blame all of life's troubles on someone else. It won't allow us to imagine halos over our own heads and, ha- and horns over everyone else's or play our desperate self-justification games. Instead, it o- offers one hope for a not guilty sentence. That's the justifying death of Jesus Christ. You see, the God of the Bible isn't the only one who claims exclusive loyalty. Our idols do as well. And it's only a matter of time before those idols make us choose. In fact, put to the choice, I think many of us would have opposed John for the same reasons Herod did. Which leads to our third point, a vindictive queen. Now, I don't know about you, it's confusing to me why Herod doesn't just put John to death. After all, A leader as corrupt as Herod has probably killed or arranged unfortunate accidents for less offenses than this. And his wife certainly seems to be set on stamping out this Jewish troublemaker. But Herod, did you notice in our passage, seems determined to keep him safe. You know, at one level, you could say Herod is much too superstitious to have John killed. After all, he's not going to mess with a self-proclaimed prophet just in case he might tick off that god. And yet, there seems to be a lot more to it than that. After all, the author tells us, even as John's teaching uh, perplexed him, uh, no kidding, um, he said he heard him gladly. It's as if there was something compelling about John's teaching even as he disagreed with it. He couldn't help recognize John's innocence and godliness. And in fact, the words here indicate that his teachings seem to have pained him, and yet it's as if he had to listen to John nonetheless, as if he could not help but to listen to his counsel, even if he could not end up following it. Herod had plenty of gods to be worshipped as a Roman, including the gods of sex and power he had put his hope in, and yet it's as if something about John's god has what he wants. Maybe, according to Herod, you could have both. You could keep your hands on both. And I think many of us, it's the same way for us, even for those who would consider ourselves to be Christians. And in fact, I think some of us are trying to play this same game. Even though we're not really sure we want Jesus to really be in charge of all of our lives, especially those parts of our lives, those doors we want to keep locked from God, we still like being around this whole Christian thing. We find it interesting even if it confuses us and frustrates us at times. We wish the pastor would just move on from that subject and talk about the ones that we really enjoy, the stuff that brings us here and leaves us with a smile and an encouragement on our faces. You know, there's something about it that we want, and yet we're not really sure we want to surrender control of our old life. And like Herod, we wonder if we can have both in the end. We can keep our hands maybe on both God and people's approval. Maybe I can keep my hand on God and my political party. 
Maybe I can keep my hand on God and my girlfriend. Maybe I can keep my hand on God and my stuff. I can't begin to describe how dangerous this ends up being and seeing that tendency in my own heart. And yet I see it as a pastor all the time from those I counsel and encourage. People who settle into a kind of in-between space in the church, getting involved in a lot of things, even learning the common language without really reckoning with their need for the gospel. Some even begin to imagine that they are Christians over time simply because they've hung around long enough. But the reality is they've never really taken Christ as Lord. It's only a matter of time then that this pretense falls apart entirely. You see, in the background of all of this, Herod's wife, Herod's Herodias, has been biding her time, w- waiting for the right opportunity to take her revenge. Her, her husband might think she's keeping, he's keeping John safe, but it's only a matter of time before she gets um, her revenge. And what could be a better way than to play on her husband's lust and love for power? You see, in the back, again, Verse 21 tells us that Herod calls a banquet to celebrate his birthday, including the top brass and upper class of his government, which I realize might seem kind of innocent to us. I mean, who's going to rain on the parade of party hats and birthday cake? But these kind of events actually devolved into something more like a stag party. Herodias seized her opportunity and sees these men already drunk and wheeling themselves into a frenzy, sends her daughter in, which we have to remind ourselves is Herod's daughter-in-law, who happens to be probably around 13 years old at this point, who goes to perform before the watching men a, let's just say, a not-so-innocent dance. This isn't ballet. For her father-in-law and his cat-calling friends, I'm not going to go into any more detail than that other than to say Herodias knows how to manipulate her husband. And once the dance is finished, Herod is willing to do anything for this young woman and blurts out this rather extreme vow, ask for me whatever you wish and I will give it to you. Probably an attempt to show off to his friends as much as he's speaking out of his own lust. And what does she ask? For the head of John the Baptist on a platter. See, friends, when it comes to it, we can't actually hold on to our idols and God. Eventually, we will have to choose. And I have to tell you, I rarely see anyone who has spent their life clinging on to their idols. I rarely see anyone who is caught in Herod's predicament actually choose God in the end. It reminds me of Jesus' words in Matthew, 20, Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Jesus is speaking specifically regarding money, but this goes to anything else that we might consider or make an idol, anything that we give ultimate importance to other than God himself. Sex and power are two of them and perhaps two of the most compelling in our culture as they were for Herod, and they are attractive gods, but they are cruel ones. They convince us to come back to them over and over again, but in the end, they cannot come through on what they promise, and they will not get get us out of the mess that they got us into. 
After all, notice the sense of loss that Herod has after all is said and done. Verse 26 tells us he was exceedingly sorry. These words indicate something like deep grief. Notice the regret and guilt that hung over Herod, so much so that it seemed entirely plausible when he starts hearing about Jesus and his miraculous signs, that the first thought in his mind is that this is John back from the grave, sure to haunt him. The regret and guilt that immediately come and probably hung over Herod for the rest of his life remind us that in the end, our idols cannot come on what come through on what they promise. They will make us choose, and in the end, they take more than they give. This leads finally to a lonely death. Friends, again, our idols will make us choose, which means that it's only a matter of time before your faith ends up really costing you in some way. Choosing Jesus means choosing many things that may marginalize you socially, It may be that biblical Christians, again, find themselves not just increasingly, to use the language, canceled, but losing friendships, maybe jobs, maybe facing legal threats. Just ask Christians around the world, believers in China who face extensive surveillance and forced closure of their churches today, believers in India who face regular beatings and have been exiled from their communities, believers in Afghanistan who who can be declared insane for their Christian faith and sanctioned to psychiatric hospitals, believers in Iran who have been imprisoned and sometimes accused of crimes against national security simply for being a Christian. Believers in Nigeria who face, many of them, forced marriages or may join the nearly 1,350 individuals who were killed for reasons bound up with their Christian faith in the past year. It is estimated that nearly 260 million Christians around the world face persecution even violence as a daily reality. Why? Because they are Christians and public about it. I'm sure when John said to Jesus, said about Jesus, he must become greater and I must become less, I doubt that this this story is what John had in mind. In fact, it seems later in life this caused John to experience a great deal of doubt about Jesus. Many Christians, you see, are, are not prepared for the difficulty their faith is bound to bring them. Difficulty that Jesus warned Christians is bound, is bound up with the cost of, of counting the cost that comes with following him. It turns out John and believers aren't the only ones or even the ultimate ones to experience loss for the sake of their loyalty to God, though. Rather, John's death points forward to another death. It's important that as we read this story, we say, this sounds familiar, because it should remind you and even set up our expectations for Jesus Christ, who went silently to his own death, executed so that Pilate, another political tyrant, might save face in front of the crowds, unjustly tried and killed as, a, as knowingly righteous and innocent as a victim. But Jesus didn't just die as a martyr or an example for us. Jesus died so that his lonely death, in his lonely death, we might finally say no no to the idols that lead there. 
to free us from, for the kind of worship, the only kind of worship, which will actually satisfy in the end. Not the worship of our idols, but the worship, the devoted, the wholehearted, unabandoned, the, I mean, the, the, the no rooms locked from God kind of love for him, this hostile takeover of your life to, to free us for that kind of worship, to ensure us that in the face of our loss then, in the face of the cost, we would not bear it alone. In fact, it would come on the way of receiving all things. In fact, it is through taking up his cross that Jesus' kingdom would come. And experiencing his kingdom is bound with taking up on our cross as well. As Roman 8, Romans 8 puts it, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tri tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Notice how many of these things are bound up with Verbal and physical persecution. Verse 36, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor anything present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Can your idols make the same promises to you? Friends, there is a cost that comes with following Jesus. It may cost you your life, but it, it may ask you a hundred daily deaths to self and some of your deepest desires, and not everyone will like that you have chosen that way. In fact, they may publicly oppose you and pressure you to stop. But our idols cost us too. In the end, they cannot come through on what they promise. Only one who can. And in the end, those idols take more than they give. Jesus is the only one who can bear the eternal weight of our identities, of our significance, of our satisfaction and security. And when we have him, we can suffer the loss of all else. Lord, we come to you as those who are sober by the example of John the Baptist, at least I am, and need your help. Because we cling to our idols. We think that they're going to satisfy. And that goes for me perhaps supremely for me. And so, Lord, we know we want to come to Jesus, the only one who can satisfy, but we're not sure that we can bear the cost. I think we're going to, I suspect we're going to see many Christians who choose, or those who consider themselves to be Christians, who choose their idols instead, who try to update the Bible and, uh, and uh, one update after another and find that they can't update it anymore and finally leave it behind. Lord, we... I need this community to be a safe community where we devote to following Christ together, where we encourage and stir one another on to love and good deeds, where we help one another to hold fast the confession when it is difficult, that this church is bound together by those who actually want to treat Christ as Lord and invite others to experience the freedom that comes with the same. Pray for those who are here who have not yet come to faith in Jesus Christ, who have not taken him as their king, who are holding you off, who are trying to do the be in that middle space, holding on to God and the idols of our culture. Would you, in your grace, wake us up that that cannot persist for long? Lord, would you call us to give loyalty to Jesus alone? To realize that we couldn't find the things we were looking for in the places we had been anyways. Lord, would we trust you, the one who's earned our trust by dying first and dying ultimately, that we might live lives of that kind of worship. We pray that our church, if it's known of any, for anything, 
even if the people within it receive some really ugly accusations and denials. If we're known anything, we love our God and we love others as a result. There will be something even compelling about that God that even as it's dismissed as the scent of death to some, would be the scent of life to others and you would build your church as you always committed to doing so. We derive strength from your word and from one another, but supremely from the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's for his sake we pray, amen.